So it's from Mark 11, verses 20 to 26. It's page 717 in the Red Pew Bible. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sin, your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, congregation. It is wonderful to be here. Now, I would like to share a story with you, a story of my own faith development in honor of the Super Bowl next Sunday. Now, the first time Tom Brady led the Patriots to a Super Bowl win, I held myself personally responsible. Maybe you should hold me personally responsible too. I'll let you be the judge. The year was 2002. We were living in pre-ESPN fantasy football era. It was all Yahoo, Yahoo fantasy football. And all the boys in my class filled their leagues up with stars from every team, but no, not me. I bet hard on the Patriots. I mean hard. Most, if not all, of my starting lineup were Patriots, which meant that the Patriots had to go all the way to the Super Bowl or none of my starting lineup would be viable for points in the fantasy football playoffs. Now, if I've already lost you, I'm sure I've lost some of you. The reason that in my young mind I could take responsibility for the Super Bowl win was not because I was Adam Ventura who, took, who made that 48-yard field goal. It's not because I'm Tom Brady and I, I, I didn't pass or receive the ball that day. It's not because I attended the game. No, I was responsible for their win because I prayed really, really hard that they would win. I prayed so hard that they would win so that my fantasy football league would also win in comparison to my classmates. I mustered up some mountain-moving faith, and the Patriots did win. I mean, correlation, causation, I mean, they were pretty good, but I pushed them over the edge. So was I responsible? To my mind, yes. Yes, I was responsible. It wasn't until sometime later that I even considered the, pro the possibility that, that someone else might have been praying as well that day. And maybe people were praying for the Rams. This led me to the thought that, that God had listened to me over and against somebody else. Wow, watch out. I was a child who had the ear of God. So, I mean, if you, if you want to get your windfall, just talk to me. I'll, I'll talk to the big man. I'll let you know what's going to happen. No, no, if, th this was a problem, right? If God had entertained my prayers because I prayed them, well, he'd also denied other people their fantasy football wishes. 
I mean, God is in a double bind every year with the Super Bowl, is he not? I mean, I could share some other positive and negative examples from my developmental understanding of prayer and faith. I don't know how old I was, but I laid hands on my computer that was dead for a month, and it turned on. I resurrected a computer. I also prayed that my runaway cat would return, and she didn't. I also felt exceptionally guilty for some time that my faith wasn't strong enough to take away my grandmother's cancer. If only Jesus didn't say I could ask anything, and it would be done. That's what our passage says today. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt it in their heart, but believes that they would say it and it will happen, it will be done for them. You know, that's not what my experience was, and it didn't sit well with me. What is Jesus saying? Now, I know I'm not alone here because studies have documented what happens when prayers go unanswered. Many children and adolescents report that they question their faith. They doubt God's existence. They doubt God's goodness. And they may even walk away from religion altogether. For me, it led to guilt and a fear that I've lost my salvation, that I lost my connection with God. So what is Jesus saying here? Is, it, is Jesus saying we need to muster up enough faith to, to get God to act, or, or we haven't built up enough faith and the problem lies with us? A closer reading of Jesus' teaching, as well as situating it in the, 21st, the first century context, it's going to help us to avoid a good deal of pitfalls when it comes to prayer. So that's what we're going to do together. And structurally, I'm going to set my sermon in three areas. I'm going to look at the audience of Jesus's message. I'm going to look at the time aspect of Jesus's message. And I'm, I'm going to look at the content of, of Jesus's message on faithful prayer. So that's how I'm going to break this down. I'm going to look at the audience, the time aspect, and the content. You know, the first point is about Jesus's audience. As readers of this English text, we assume that Peter asked Jesus a question. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you curse has withered, or he makes a statement. And Jesus responds to Peter, giving him private counsel. If that were true, then the meaning would primarily apply to us individuals in the context of our prayer closets. If we pray for anything, we wish, uh, we should simply pray, I mean, right, for our benefit. I mean, we could pray for a Bugatti if we wanted to. Uh, maybe praying for the outcome of, of a stunt, like, like breathing underwater for a super long time or, or moving a mountain, and it would be done. But I wonder, what, what changes does it make to meaning if Jesus isn't just talking to Peter here, if he's talking to all the disciples and he's using language that's consistent with community prayer? Because that's what's happening here. Jesus's audience was the disciples collectively, and his audience today, therefore, is the church collectively. Even though Peter's question initiates a conversation, Jesus instructs the disciples as a community. And we know this because in verses 22, 24, and 25, they're all expressed in plural language. You all, 
And even though verse 23 has some singular language, it branches off from plural language at the beginning of this of the sentence and and returns in verse 24 to the main point therefore i tell you all so let me reread this using you alls and you can follow along with me starting in verse 22 and jesus answered them you all have faith in god truly i say to you all whoever says to this mountain be taken and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you all, whatever you all ask in prayer, believe that you all have received it and it will be yours alls. I don't know how to do that one. Um, And whenever, (laughs) y'alls, and whenever you all stand praying, forgive if you all have anything against, have done anything against anyone so that your father in heaven may forgive you all your trespasses. I mean, doesn't that make a big difference? You alls. One commentator says here, prayer here is represented as something that the community of disciples undertakes together, not a private transaction between the individual believer and God. I mean, the context of our prayers also shapes the content, what we pray for. I mean, we pray differently when we together. I mean, we might, I'm not going to stop the person who does community prayer for praying for a Bugatti for me, um, they can do that, or they can pray for the Super Bowl win, but it, it's, not, not, it's not likely. That's not what we pray for when we pray together. It's more likely that when we pray as a community, our prayers line up with the heart of God, right? The audience of this passage affects its meaning. So consider, let's look a little more widely, that Jesus had just left the t- temple complex. He just cursed a fig tree and said, I, I think that in the widest possible lens, the, the, the symbol there is not simply that Israel is fruitless, but it's, it's that when you reject God, you reject life itself. And this call to community prayer contrasts, contrasts imme- with what immediate, ha- excuse me, what, what, what he says about community prayer contrasts with what happens immediately before this. I mean, what, how does Jesus condemn the money changers for, for turning what? The house, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, right? Robbers are self-interested, but the people of God are people of prayer who pray together in a way that radically contrasts with self-centeredness and, and self-interestedness that the money changers had. Yes, let's pray in our prayer closets, as fervently as we do when we pray together. But as a church, make no mistake, the content of our prayers, these prayers that can move mountains are not self-interested prayers. So let's keep on with Jesus' teaching. The first point is that Jesus' audience is the collective church. And this is about prayer prayed together. The second point is about the pattern of prayer, its time aspect. So on first reading, we may think that this time aspect is a cause and effect sort of thing. Uh, you, you think of a Rube's Goldberg device, or you think of like a, 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 a vending machine, right? You, so you, you pray and it starts a process in motion. I select B4, I select the Cheetos and out pop the Cheetos. If this is true, then prayer is cause and effect. There is more than just a correlative relationship between prayer and its aftermath. In fact, there's a causative relationship. In other words, I am very much responsible for the 2002 Super Bowl victory, and if anybody won any money on that, you're welcome. Not so. So 
the time aspect here is really important, and that comes out in the Greek. This, this isn't a, a completed action. Actually, this is in present tense, which represents continuous action. And this grammatical point makes a difference because it accentuates the need for continuous prayer, a pattern of ongoing prayer. It exhorts us to keep believing, keep praying, keep asking, keep believing. And, and interestingly enough, that those verbs are chiastically arranged. There's an A, B, B, A pattern, starting midway through verse 23. Let's read this together. So midway through, believing that what, so believing that what uh, you, he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you all, whatever you are praying and asking, so believing, praying, asking, keep believing that you've received it. So, so we see that believing, asking, praying, believing. Um, biblical writers use chiasms like this for specific points. Um, if I want, I want you to go with me for a second. So if, if using verb forms represent present continuous action, if that wasn't enough, the fact that prayer is center at the center of all this means that that's the central emphasis of this passage rather than faith or belief. That's, that's buttressed. Uh, prayer is buttressed by faith, but prayer is the point. Now, he says, makes an interesting statement. Believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Um, in Adlerian therapy, there's a technique known as acting as if. The acting as if method encourages you to uh, act out desirable, beha desirable behaviors already. For example, you want to become empathetic, show empathy. If you want to be proactive, make proactive decisions. If you want to be a family that, that is involved in one another's lives, Eat dinner together and act like you already are one. Emotions follow behaviors. At least that, that's how the theory goes. So in, this, in a, the same way, the church is being asked to pray in such a way as to believe that the outcome is true. And even though there's a continuation of asking, week upon week, possibly year upon year, Jesus tells us to hold in view God's goodwill towards creation. Our passage is absolutely not an example of magical thinking, of vending machine prayers that are shot off, one and done. It emphasizes the necessity of perseverance in prayer in the face even of, of seemingly contradictory reality. Um, so what's the pattern for community prayer? It's continuous prayer. It's a pattern of ongoing prayer, which is not self-interested. So to keep us on track, let me recap. The first point is about Jesus's audience, which is collective, the whole church. We pray together. The second point is about the pattern of prayer. It's time aspect, which is ongoing, and, and there's perseverance involved. And the third point is about the content of our prayers. You know, upon first reading this passage, it appears Jesus is bidding us to, to try God, to, to just test him out, to, to pray for anything we should desire, no matter how superfluous or even dangerous such an action would be. Say to a mountain, be thrown into the sea. You know, that is unnecessary, even reckless. It just totally throws off a delicate ecosystem balance. Say to a cloud, stop raining. Say to the street before your office, there will be a parking spot. Say to your bank account, let someone make a clerical error in my favor. I mean, is there no demarcation in this passage about the content of prayers we're bid to pray? Now, we've already shown that, that praying in community does make a difference, right? We, we pray for specific things when we uh, pray in community and praying for things that are superfluous misses the, the, the whole point. But Jesus also provides some direction. 
um, in his illustrations, the fig tree and the mountain. The fig tree and the mountain. Both of these are highly symbolic in the Jewish faith. Jesus curses the fig tree, a symbol of a fruitless Israel, right? It's more generally, though, it, it, death of a fig tree represents those who reject God's Messiah, rejecting life itself. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting life. It's a path unto death. The mountain is symbolic as well. We've heard about the moving of mountains. If you, if you peek, if you're curious, the beginning of Mark's gospel begins with mention of mountains. Right, so, so the voice of John the Baptist at the very beginning, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And every mountain will, will, hill will be made low. This is the image of building a highway of God, flattened, flattening the landscape, preparing the way for God's Messiah. I mean, this was John the Baptist's kingdom purpose, to prepare the way for the Lord. But it's not just in, in Mark's gospel. It's not just in John the Baptist's ministry. Zechariah 14.4 was an Old Testament passage that looked to the coming day of the Lord and looked to the Mount of Olives, which is likely in view as Jesus taught this on the road to Bethany, leaving from the east of Jerusalem. This reads, Zechariah 14, 4, On that day the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half the mountain moving south. The phrase about moving mountains was commonplace. It was on many a person's lips. A famous rabbi was once described as if he was plucking up mountains. The rabbis speak of uprooting mountains as a shorthand way of describing the coming of God and God's reign. But in this, Jesus intensifies this language. I mean, he's not just talking about mountains moving off to the side. He's talking about them completely disappearing into the depths of the sea. There's an intensification here because Jesus is saying something about the content of our prayers when we pray together. I mean, it's as if Jesus is bidding us to pray, come Lord Jesus, come and reign upon this earth. Make your reign. We pray in step with John the Baptist's purpose and we're bid to pray for Jesus's reign as though it were already present, right? To act as if. Those are deeply symbolic images that go a long way to show us that on first reading of this text, we can miss the point that Jesus is making. Jesus wants us to know and trust that God is capable of changing the world and remaking everything, redeeming everything. This passage is about prayer because prayer is how we exercise our faith. We ought to be a house of prayer for the nations. We pray because God is the one who acts. And when Jesus answers uh, Peter in verse 22, have faith in God, it's a really interesting phrase. Jesus is literally saying, have a faith of God. I mean, for Greek scholars among us, God here is in the genitive. It's not in the dative of God. Um, a faith of God. It's saying something, making something of a superlative statement. It's a Hebraism, as, as they would call it. So affixing that of God, it creates a, a, an idea of something so great that nothing can be greater, right? Trust completely is what it's saying. Now, 
I hear these words as words of encouragement. This, this text isn't primarily about believing God for miracles. It's not about having confidence in confidence itself. Maybe Peter was wondering about the mechanics of how the, the tree withered and was trying to figure that all out, but don't miss the fact that Jesus totally redirects him. Jesus has a different purpose. He knows that his crucifixion is on the horizon. His disciples need a word of encouragement because though the Jews will come and kill Jesus, the disciples need to see that those who reject Jesus reject life itself. They have chosen a path of their own demise, and there's no eternal life to be found outside of God. So he says, keep praying, because God is coming. He's still coming, even though there are dark days ahead. In fact, when you pray, believe that God is already here. Believe without faltering. And because, uh, because believing is difficult, pray as a community. Do it together. Take heart and stay fixed on the day when the mighty arm of God will pluck up the mountains like flowers, making clear his path to the city. Now, I don't have time to ex expand on this last verse, but I want you to consider that that's in plural language as well. And whenever you all stand praying, forgive if you all have anything against anyone so that your Father, who is also in heaven, may forgive you all your trespasses. I mean, what do we make of that? Um, I mean, what, as I was thinking about it, and I'll just say this briefly, what this means for me is that reconciliation is part of every Sunday, right? When we pass the peace, there's some reconciliation going on there that means laying down grievances. We cannot pray as if we're with peace, at peace with God when we're harboring resentment or bitterness against others, especially others that we're sitting next to. And so it's an act of worship. Prayer puts God back at the central place of what we cling to and what we rely on because faith and worship cannot be separated. Now, as, as we consider the various applications, right, I've, I've made various application points along the way. Let, let me forever disavow us of the, the commonplace reading of this passage. I think it strikes a chord with American Christianity and American values more than it does with first century values. A, a first century Jewish audience would have seen things that we just miss. We cannot move forward applying this passage to our prayer closets, because that will only lead to disillusionment and, and disappointment on the one hand, or, or delusion and playing make-believe on the other. No, the audience of this passage is the church. This prayer is corporate. The time aspect of this is continuous. It's an ongoing prayer. And the subject is that we pray for whatever is going to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus does not abandon his, his mission to, to offer us magical access to, to God as a heavenly genie. I mean, to be clear, praying for the Super Bowl is magical thinking. I was a magical thinking 11-year-old. <laughs> and sometimes I'm still magical thinking. Um, such prayer makes God out to be a genie inside a lamp who will grant us our wishes. And more insidiously, this belief can create the mentality that what we need to have is faith in faith itself or confidence in confidence itself rather than in God. As Christians, do we believe that we can achieve anything or do anything only if we pray the right way or believe strongly enough? 
No, absolutely, we do not believe that. That is a bland therapeutic theology that is really not even that interesting at the heart of it. It's, it's making the center of our worship ourselves. It's, it's self-interest. Let's instead never cease in praying together. That's the heart of this passage, that God's kingdom will come. Be encouraged as we plant seeds of hope as a community. You know, if you meet as a small group, pray for God's kingdom to come, for mountains to bow down and for valleys to rise up, to create a superhighway for God who is coming and is here. When we meet for Sunday worship, let's be encouraged that God's plan A didn't fail. It's still in effect, and we see glimpses of it even now. Let's set our trust in God alone, because when we do, we'll see the idols that plague us, including the individualism and the things which direct our magical thinking, that those start to lose their grip on us as a community. And when we hold this passage in better balance with the call to submit to God's will, to, to redeem everything, I, I, I think... Um, I think what will happen is our, our hearts will learn that, that trust balance of acting as if his reign were already realized in every corner of our life together. Sorry, not sorry if I totally ruined this passage for you. But I think that the, the meaning here as Jesus intended it is, is so much deeper and has all to do with God's splendor and his glory, which we can never stop hoping for and is already here. Let's pray for that. Um, God, I do pray that you would move mountains. I pray that you would come. I pray that you would make your kingdom known here among us, that we would live into what your kingdom looks like. Um, I pray that if we are holding on to resentment or bitterness, things that need to be lifted up to you, I pray that you would give us the grace to do it, um, to put you back at the center of our hearts so that you could be glorified. Um, I do thank you that you're on the move, um, and I pray that we would be ever-searching um, for our place in your story. Thank you for Jesus, and I thank you that by trusting in him, we do become part of your story. Um, I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.